Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series 7. In the book of Revelation, John records Jesus' message to seven churches, speaking to them words of rebuke, exhortation, and encouragement. Though these letters were written in the first century, Jesus is still speaking through them to us today. So this morning, we're going to be continuing in our series 7 on the seven churches of Revelation. We'll be reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. You can follow along in your Bibles. It will not be on our screens, which do not exist this morning during the construction. I'll be using the New International Version, and actually you can follow along if you've got one of the devotional cards. All the texts from this week's text are printed there on the card as well. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Hear now the words of the risen living Savior to his church. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. One of the uh, highest selling authors of the last century was J.R.R. Tolkien, and in his books, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, he wove together a tale of what he referred to as Middle Earth, and it was full of heroic, mythic creatures that were larger than life and individuals that were larger than life. But one of the things that Tolkien loved to do in the tales was the hero of the stories was not any of these larger-than-life characters. It was not the great, powerful individuals or the wizards. It was these little creatures called hobbits that were so small and seemingly insignificant that virtually everybody ignored them, especially the great evil powers, and that was the evil power's weakness. They missed the actual heroes of the story. And and, uh, Gandalf the Grey, who's one of the major powerful heroes in the story, multiple times goes over that of saying, everybody ignores these halflings. They, They don't seem impressive, but actually they're going to be the heroes. They are the ones who are going to accomplish what none of the rest of us could accomplish. And so Tolkien was doing this because he wants us to know that things are not always what they seem. Sometimes we view things one way, but the reality is something quite different. It's what's known as paradox. And paradox is a key to understanding this letter to the church to Smyrna. Because we're going to see, Jesus is going to say, you appear to be poor, but you're actually rich. There are people who claim to be God's people but they're actually the synagogue of Satan. Some of you are going to be killed and martyred and put to death, but all that's really going to happen is you're going to be given the crown of life. 
So the whole letter is a series of paradoxes, things that appear to be one way, but Jesus says, but I'm the one who knows, and I'm telling you it's actually the opposite of what you think it would be. So let's join together today and hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now Jesus speaks to his church in Smyrna. We, we read in Revelation 2.8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Right, so where is this town Smyrna? What is it? Now what's interesting is Smyrna is the only one of the seven cities that are written to in Revelation 2 and 3 that actually still exists today. All the other cities have ceased to exist. Ephesus no longer exists. It's just ruins in Turkey today. But actually, you can go to Smyrna. It's known as Izmir today. It still exists. It has been existing for over 2,000 years now. And it's about 40 miles or so north of Ephesus, the city we looked at last week. And you remember I said last week, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire, but Smyrna was a rival to Ephesus in many ways. They're only 40 miles apart, and Smyrna actually had coins struck that said, we are the first of Asia in beauty and size. Now, Ephesus said, no, you're not, we're bigger. And, but Smyrna was about 200,000 people. It was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, and it claimed to be the rival. It was a big rival with Ephesus. And it was a great seaport. It had a natural harbor. And because it was such a good seaport, it was a very wealthy city. The other reason it was wealthy was Smyrna was known for being extremely loyal to Rome. As early as 195 BC, when Rome was by no means assured to be the major power in the area, Smyrna had declared her loyalty to Rome. This was when when Rome was still fighting with Carthage, okay? This is around the time of Hannibal, and everything is still going. Nobody's sure that Rome's going to win. Smyrna had already declared and thrown its lot in with Rome. They were one of the first cities in that area to do so. They were the first city to have a temple to the goddess Roma, which was the female goddess that represented Rome. They, in essence, said, we worship Rome. They had competed, uh, and in 26 AD were selected out of 12 cities they were the one that was chosen by Tiberius to set up the imperial cult temple. So Tiberius said, you're my choice. You are the city that is going to primarily represent worship of me because I am God. And so Smyrna was very, very dedicated to this. And in fact, under Domitian, who is the Roman emperor from 81 to 96, which is probably when John is writing this, John was probably exiled under Domitian to Patmos. Yearly incense worship to the godhead of Caesar was required for everyone. You had to go in and burn a pinch of incense to an image of Caesar as to God, and if you did not, you were under the threat and penalty of death. Now, the reality is, when these kind of edicts were done at this time, Depending on where you lived, it may or may not be enforced. So it may be that if you lived in Richmond, Virginia, and there was an edict like that coming out of D.C., the guy in Richmond says, I'm not too into all that. But if you lived in Annapolis, perhaps the leaders in Annapolis said, we are into that. Well, Smyrna was a place that followed that. They took it seriously. They said, we've been loyal to Rome from 195, we were the first in the area loyal. We have the 
first uh, temple to the goddess Roma, and we were selected by the emperor himself to be the place that institutes his worship. And so when the emperor calls for worship, we are going to give worship. They are zealous to enforce this, and that's going to lead to problems for the church in Smyrna. Now, Jesus here, before we even turn to the letter, that's Smyrna, who is Jesus? Well, he appears again as the sovereign God speaking to his church. We're going to see this in almost every one of the letters. We're told, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who was the first and the last who died and came to life again. I'm not going to go over the phrase, these are the words. I talked about that last week. It's actually a very important Greek phrase that is used for, thus says the Lord in the prophets in the Old Testament. It's used over and over again, for example, in the book of Amos. It's also used by Cyrus when he does the edict. It is the words that are used to say what follows are the words of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can listen to more to last week's teaching to see that. But notice Jesus goes on and says, so these are the words of him who is the first and the last. He is making a claim here saying that I am in fact the eternal God. That's the one who is speaking. I am the first and the last. Uh, the same claim is actually made in Revelation 1, 17 and 18. If you look at that text, many of the things that Jesus gives to the churches are given there in short form from Revelation 1, 12 to 20. And in verses 17 and 18, he uses many of the same titles. And among them are, I am the first and the last. And at the very end of the book, some of the last words of Jesus recorded are in Revelation 22, 13. And Jesus says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's three different ways of saying the same thing. Alpha and omega, of course, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am literally the words first and last, and I am the beginning and the end. It is a claim that Jesus is the sovereign God. He is the one who encompasses all things. But it's more than just we know this because of its use in Revelation. It's actually a quote from the Old Testament. Jesus is here quoting from Isaiah 44, 6, a statement where Yahweh speaks through his prophet regarding the nations of the world thinking they are sovereign, thinking that their gods would rule. Yahweh says this. This is Isaiah 44, 6. And the words Lord in this verse are the petrogrammaton, the Hebrew word for the name of God that we usually refer to as Yahweh. This is what the Lord, Yahweh, says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord, Yahweh Almighty. I am the first and I am the last, and apart from me there is no God. Now Jesus takes these words where Yahweh says, I'm the first and I'm the last, and I am the only God. No one else can make a claim to be first and last. No one else can make a claim to be God because there is no other God. And then Jesus steps up and says, I am the first and the last. And apart from me, there is no God. And notice he then continues on for this church in Smyrna and says, and I am the one who died and has come to life again. I am the resurrected one. I am the one who has conquered death. So Jesus is saying, I am the king of kings and lord of lords, not Domitian. I am the first and the last, the only true God, not Domitian. And I am the one who has conquered death. 
and therefore you need not fear death. The one who speaks to the church is none other than Jesus, the eternal God who has conquered death and who lives forever. That's his opening words to this church. And pay attention, every time we go through one of these, how Jesus reveals himself is to what the church needs to hear. And the church in Smyrna needs to hear that the emperor is not God, Jesus is God. And the church in Smyrna needs to hear that Jesus has conquered even death. Because as we're going to see, that's a very real possibility for the church there. Now, what is it that he says to the, this church in Smyrna, this persecuted church in Smyrna? Jesus begins his words in Revelation 2.9 by saying this, I know your afflictions and poverty. We'll come back to that phrase again, I know. You remember we saw it last week. He says it to every church speaking of his intimate knowledge. But here he says, there's two things I know about you, your afflictions and your poverty. The word afflicted refers to something that, that troubles you and, and causes distress. You're being distressed because of something, and this is not a self-inflicted thing. Somebody or something else is creating distress for you. And Jesus says, I understand you are afflicted. You are suffering. And tied to that, what you are suffering is deep poverty. Now, the NIV has translated the Greek word here actually as poverty, which is a good translation because it's not just that you are in a little bit of economic distress, you are actually experiencing deep poverty. There are two Greek words for being poor. This one is tokea. The other one is uh, actually penes, uh, from which we would get a word like penury. Uh, and penes, actually, one of the lexicographers, Trench, has a saying that's become very famous. He said, the one who is a penes, who's kind of poor, has nothing superfluous. The tokos, the word Jesus used here, has nothing at all. This is deep, extreme poverty. And so Jesus says you're suffering, and in particular what I understand that you're suffering is you are suffering extreme poverty, and here's the irony. You're doing it in the midst of one of the wealthiest cities in this part of the empire. And probably you all were formerly enjoying that wealth. But now you are afflicted with deep poverty in the midst of that wealth. Now, why do they have that poverty? There are some scholars who for a while wanted to say, well, because they were probably from the lower classes originally. But Jesus here gives us indications in the text that's not why they're suffering poverty. The reason they're suffering poverty is because they are suffering persecution. You notice in verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those. Now, again, the NIV is, the word I know, that verb is not repeated. The NIV is just making the English a little smoother because Greek likes long sentences. English does not. So it breaks it up. But it's right in that it's relating it back. Your poverty and your afflictions are related to the fact that you are being slandered. The word's actually what we would normally trans, uh, translate blasphemed. It's blasphemia. You are being blasphemed. You are being slandered by these people. And he goes on and he says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Now, this is not the same word as afflictions. We're going to come back to that word in a minute. It's actually the Greek word pasha, 
from which if you've got any Eastern Orthodox friends, you'll know that they call Easter and the whole time around Passover, Pasha, because it's the word for suffering, and it's actually the word that's used for the passion of Christ. If you remember the movie a few years ago, it comes from this Greek word, Pasha. And he says, I know you are suffering. And he uses not just a general word, it's the same word that is used for Jesus' own suffering. And he says, I understand you are going through that. And in fact, he goes on in verse 10 and tells him, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. You are going to be tried. You are going to be tested. Uh, This is going to be a test of your faith because you're not only being slandered, you are not only having to suffer, in fact, you are going to be thrown into jail because of your faith. And he says that you are going to suffer persecution for 10 days. And the word for persecution there that the the NIV has translated suffer persecution is the same Greek word that is used for afflictions in verse 8. So there's kind of a play on words. I know your afflictions and your particular affliction is you're suffering persecution. That's what you are actually going through uh, here. And in fact, it's going to end that some of you are going to be put to death. You're going to have to be faithful and you got to do it to the point of death And I wish I could tell you, well, that Greek phrase means right up to the point of death and then you get rescued. It doesn't. Some of you are going to die, is what Jesus is saying. You're suffering and some of you are going to be put to death. And that's why you're experiencing affliction and poverty is because there is persecution. You've been slandered, you're suffering, you're being put in jail, And some of you are even going to end up being put to death. Now, what's going on? What's producing this? What's happening? There's a process that is revealed here in the text, and we also know it from history a little bit. The process is this. He says in verse uh, 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews. Now, remember, Smyrna is zealous for emperor worship. They are, they are into this emperor worship. But there's one group of people in the empire that are exempt. Caesar had given a blanket exemption to one group of people, Jews. If you were a Jew, you did not have to participate in this because we, we kind of wonder, like, why would they do this? Well, Jews were about 10% of the population of the Roman Empire. They were a very large minority in the Roman Empire, and they were spread everywhere in the Roman Empire, and Rome just decided it would be easier to not have to deal with this. Everybody else will get with the program, but the Jews won't, so we just give them an exemption. And early on, Rome looked at Christians and said, well, they're just another sect of Jews. You got Pharisees, and you got Sadducees, and you got the Essenes, and you got the Herodians, you got all these different groups of people. Well, these Nazarenes are just another one of these groups. But starting with the persecution under Nero around 64 AD, that had started to change. And there is evidence that it had really changed in this part of the province of Asia. And the synagogues, we're told in verse 9, were are putting them out. The slander is they're putting them out of the synagogues. And we're going to read in another city that that's literally being spoken of as happening. And so the Jews are making an example and saying, no, those Christians, they're not part of us. We don't have to give the pinch of incense to the emperor. They do. And you all ought to make them do it because they are not part of us. And so the Christians are being reported 
by the Jews who are, are slandering them. And again, we need to remember here, the Jews is referring to basically Judaism. This is not an issue of, uh, of some kind of uh, racism or something because the person who's reporting the word, the person who's speaking them, Jesus, is what nationality? Jewish. Okay, and the person he's speaking them through, John, is Jewish. It's not about that. It's about whether people have recognized Jesus as the Messiah or not. That's the argument going on. And so Christians are being forced out of the synagogues, no longer given that protection, and they're being reported on, and now they're being told, you have to offer incense to Caesar as God. And to the Romans, they say, look, it's not really a big deal. I mean, whether you believe he's God or not, just offer the pinch of incense. Just get with the program. This is the way we understand it. And if you want to participate in society, you're going to get with the program. And the Christians said, can't do that. We're not looking for a fight. We're not trying to argue. We want to be loyal, faithful citizens. And we have from the earliest records, we pray for the emperor. We do this regularly as we gather together. But we cannot offer incense to him as if he's God. We cannot do that. It violates our faith. And so what happens at that point is pressure gets put on in increasing degrees. And this is the way persecution always works. If you go to a place even like where I was last year in Egypt, visiting even the families who had had, had sons and brothers and fathers martyred, the 20 guys that were martyred, the Egyptians that were martyred by ISIS two years ago, the way persecution starts there is not immediately death. Initially, it starts, we're just telling you, you have to get along with this. You have to follow the way we're going in our culture. And if you don't follow it, then you're going to be in trouble. We're going to start fining you economically. You can't participate economically. There's going to be restrictions if you don't do this. And that's exactly what's going on in verse 9. That's why you have poverty. There's plenty of economic activity. But if you won't get with the program then we're going to start fining you if you won't. This should sound familiar to you. If you're not going to get with the program, you can't participate. You can't be part of it. That's how persecution begins. And if you won't get with the program, and even the fining and economic restrictions don't work, we'll start putting some of you in jail. Because what you're doing is unacceptable. All you have to do is admit and say we're right. That's what you have to do. And the Christians are saying, we can't do that. And if you won't recant and jail doesn't work, it's only then that death is inflicted. Unless we think this is something that is just local to Smyrna, notice in verse 10, Jesus actually says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in jail. Now, this is not a statement that, you know, a guy with red horns on his head is going to pop out and physically lock them up in jail. What does he mean? Who's going to put him in jail? It's going to be actual human beings, but who's the one behind all of this? It's the devil. And for this reason, it's not surprising, the process of persecution has been the same for thousands of years. It always goes through the same cycle because the same person is always behind it. And so the Smyrnians at this point, it appears they've already suffered economic persecution, but Jesus is warning them, I've got news for you, it's not going to get better right now. It's going to get worse before it gets better. You've suffered economic persecution because you've been cut off, but here's what lies ahead of you. 
Some of you are going to get thrown into jail. And some of you, when you refuse to recant, are going to be put to death. Now, what's interesting is we have historical record of this exact thing happening. In 112 AD, in the province next to Bithynia and Pontus, but in the same general area, it's all in Turkey, uh, a man named Pliny the Younger had written to the emperor Trajan, and he said, I've got these Christians. They've been reported to me that they're not wanting to participate in the emperor worship, and I wasn't out there looking for them, but people turned them in, just like we hear with Smyrna. And now that they've been turned in, I mean, at that point, what I started doing was basically, I would try and convince them to give a pinch of incense. When they wouldn't do that and they wouldn't get with the program and they're just being obstinate, that's what I can't put up with, is the obstinacy of it all. And so I started torturing them. And if they will give in under torture and then give a pinch of incense, then I've heard they're not really Christians, so I let them go. But if they won't do that, I've tortured some of them until they die. To which Trajan said, that's the basic process you should follow. If they won't get with the program, they're being obstinate, and that's the ultimate problem. They won't get with the program. And actually, we know in Smyrna itself, one of the most famous martyrdoms in Christian history happened in Smyrna. In 155 AD, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, the apostle, who's writing the book of Revelation, Polycarp is martyred in 155 AD in Smyrna, in this exact city, and it followed the exact same process. We see it all over again. I'm not going to talk more about those. If you tune in to After Hours this week, our little video we'll shoot on Tuesday, I'll give you about five or six minutes on the persecutions of these guys that I'm talking about because we actually have historical records. Ignatius wrote a letter to Smyrna. Uh, we have the martyrdom of Polycarp, and Ignatius also wrote a letter to Polycarp. I was reading both of those this week, so there's a lot of information about that. I'll go into some of the stuff in after hours this week. But that's the, the persecution that's happening in this church. Now, what is Jesus going to speak to them? Interestingly, we saw last week, you remember in Ephesus, there was good. There were words of commendation, and then there were words of correction. There is no word of correction to the church in Smyrna. There is only a word of encouragement to this church. And Jesus begins his encouragement by giving them a series of paradoxes. Going back to like what I said about Tolkien. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. See, persecution has made you materially poor, but the same process that made you materially poor, I am telling you, has made you spiritually rich. And that's my estimation of you, not that you're poor, but that you are rich. And I want you to understand further that this whole process was kicked off because people who claimed to be serving God, they said that they were God's people, they were claiming to be Jews, but they're not. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. They think what they're doing is right. They think what they're doing is good and true and just, but it's actually the opposite of every one of those things. They think they are serving the cause of justice. They are actually unjust to the infinite degree in what they are doing. They say they're my people. They are actually a synagogue, a gathering place of Satan, is what Jesus says that they are. And then he goes on and tells him, I want you to understand, I'm calling you to be faithful even to the point of death. Some of you are going to be put to death, but all that's going to happen when they do that, when they kill you, the second you're dead, I give you the crown of eternal life. 
So they can put you to death physically, but I am telling you, I, the living, resurrected one, will be there, and I will give you the crown of everlasting life the moment they do that. All they can do is usher you into eternal reward. And so Jesus is here declaring to them, I am sovereign, and I will use what Satan and other people mean for harm to bring good to my people, and I will do it now, and I will do it eternally. Exactly what the enemy means for evil, I'm working good. He wants to make you poor, I'm using it to make you rich. He is wanting to, to, to get other people to say that they are God and you are cut off. I am telling you they are the synagogue of Satan and you are my people. I am your God, you are my people. They want to put you to death. All they can actually do is usher you into eternal life and eternal blessings because I, the sovereign God, am overruling all things. If you are in Smyrna, that is a word of encouragement because they don't, they don't have the power to affect this change themselves. But Jesus says, remember, I am sovereign. Now, he goes on with a further word of encouragement. And remember, if you notice in verse eight or verse nine, he says, I know, this is that Greek word that, remember, it appears in every one of these letters. We're going to see it in every letter. And all the time, except for one, oddly enough, we're going to come back to Laodicea, who thinks they're rich. And everybody says they're rich. And Jesus says, I, I know you got a reputation of being rich, but you're not. You're poor. Okay? But here, Jesus is using that word that's used very little in the rest of Revelation, but it's used in these letters. And he says, I know. It may feel like when you are suffering, this is the worst part of suffering. We feel distant from God. And the, the voice of the enemy speaks to us and says, you are cut off. You are forsaken by God. But Jesus, who was truly forsaken so that we might never be, says, I want you to know, I know. I am here. I, not, not only do I see, not only have I heard, I know your suffering. I know your affliction. I know your poverty. And I am here with you. I am walking among the lampstands. I am here participating with you in the midst of this. And he goes on in verse 10 and says, therefore, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. How many times did Jesus tell the disciples when he was walking around, fear not? Remember when, when Ryan taught just a while back about uh, Peter out on the waves and everything, and Jesus is there. What's the first thing he says when he comes to him? Fear not. It's me. Don't be afraid. I am here. Jesus says the same thing. I'm telling you, suffering is coming. You can all see the storm clouds gathering there. I am telling you, do not be afraid because I'm the sovereign God. I am in charge of all things. And he uses this little phrase, you're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, this is where a lot of American Christians get themselves in trouble in Revelation. Does 10 days mean literally 10 days? No, it does not. Numbers in the book of Revelation can't be read that way. And when you do, you're just getting yourself in trouble. Are there only seven churches in Asia? No, there are hundreds of churches in Asia at this time. There are seven representative churches that are being picked out because, you know, there's a reason why I picked the number seven, which occurs over and over again in the book. Ten days does not mean literally ten days. What it means is there's a short period of time 
There's a set duration. It's actually the same period, if you remember, Daniel and his companions were tested for 10 days by the, the king of Babylon. And Jesus is saying, look, I want you to understand, I am allowing this suffering to come, but I am in control of when it starts. I am in control of how long it will endure and how far it can go. I am superintending and sovereignly watching over all things. You need to know that. And then your response is this. I am calling you to be faithful even to death. If I choose and allow death to come, I call you to be faithful and know this, because I am sovereign, eternal life awaits. There is a crown of life that no one can take away from you. And he speaks in verse 11 and says, he who overcomes, this is the Greek word from which we get Nike and the whole swoosh, okay? They took it from this phrase. That's what it means to be an overcomer. And they say, look, if you overcome, you will not be hurt at all by the second death. You can overcome because you can realize all they can possibly do is take your life. Now, that may sound funny to us, but Jesus is saying when you're looking at it that way, you're not understanding the paradox, okay? You can look and say, I am poor, but I'm telling you, you're rich. And you can say, these people can take my life, and I'm telling you, all they can do is take your life. Because I'm telling you, when they do that, I give you eternal life. And the first death is not what matters. Because here's a secret, friends. You, you probably didn't be, you're probably not aware of this. You're going to die. Every one of you. I will prophesy it now. You are going to draw your last breath, unless you're alive when Jesus returns, and then you're going to have to experience that in the twinkling of an eye. You're going to die. That's not a question. And so Jesus says to focus on the first death is foolishness, because everybody's going to die. You Christians in Smyrna are going to die. The ones persecuting you are going to die. Domitian's going to die. Here's the question. Will you face the second death? Will you be cut off from me? And I am telling you, if you are an overcomer by your faith, the second death can't touch you. It cannot hurt you. It cannot affect you. And so the Lord is telling and speaking to the church that the external temporal sufferings of this life cannot compare to the eternal glory and joy we receive from Jesus. And he speaks that to the church. He says, and don't miss that fact. Now, how do we apply this word? What does the Spirit say to Bay Ridge? Two questions, and then we come to the table of life. First question. Do we see that persecution is the normal lot of the church. This is typical. Do we understand that? Smyrna is not atypical. There's no word of correction here for Smyrna. They're not suffering persecution because they're being unfaithful. They're suffering persecution because they're being faithful. That's why they're getting it. There was a way out of the persecution. It was compromise. 
and that church is coming. We're going to see them in the coming weeks. But they were suffering for being faithful, and it's the typical lot of the church. Faithful believers have often suffered through the ages. And I will again make a prophecy, because it's not really a prophecy, it's based on Scripture. Faithful believers will continue to suffer in the future. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, put that in the Jesus Promise book. That's not what we sell in our evangelical bookstores. We don't like those promises, but they are promises. They are there. We, we have tried to excise them out of the Scripture, and we act as if suffering is some strange thing. I, I could quote 1 Peter, where the Apostle Peter says, writing to Christians in the province of Asia, in this same area. And Peter writes to them and says, don't act like it's strange that this is going on, that you're suffering the fires of this persecution. This, this isn't strange. This is what we were called to. This is what it means to be a believer in this age. Now let me go ahead and say, if you are paying attention, you should be noting we are seeing the early parts of this process now. Right here. There is economic pressure being brought to bear. Now today, it is not, here is a statue of the president or the head of the Congress or whatever else and burn a pinch of incense. Today, here is the God we are told to worship. We have a sexual revolution on our hands. And you will agree with this revolution, and if you do not, there's going to be hell to pay. And it doesn't matter what you have done, how nice you have been, how much you labor, you will either burn the pinch of incense, and you will say that this is in fact good and right and holy, or we're coming after you. And if you're not seeing that, you're not awake. It is what's going on in our culture right now. There was just a week or two ago a woman in Washington who had refused to participate in a wedding ceremony that she said violated my faith and I can't do it. But I've served the same clients before. Knowing their sexual preferences, I've served them many, many times. In fact, I have many people with the same sexual preferences that work for me. There's clearly not an issue here with that. You will bow. And if you don't, there will be economic pressure brought to bear. Because it's the same process. It always has been. It continues. If you go to a place like Egypt, it's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can be here, you just can't really participate. And eventually, we're going to go from that to we're going to bring more and more pressure to bear. And it ends in Egypt in recent weeks with ISIS-related groups killing Coptic believers again because they won't get with the program. So, Questions for you and I. Are we willing to suffer economic poverty to remain faithful to Christ? It's easy to say, hey, I'm faithful to Jesus. I'm going to do what Jesus wants. But what happens when it hurts my bottom line? What happens when I live in the midst of economic wealth 
And to be faithful to Jesus means I might start living below the line. Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to say, I will do it even if it costs me because I simply can't, I can't burn the pinch of incense you want me to burn. I can't do that. My faith won't allow that. Are we willing to do that? What if the heat of persecution grows even hotter than that? Are we willing to remain faithful? You need to understand. How many of you in here own an English Bible? Anybody in here own one? How did you get that Bible in your hands? What, at what cost did it come? Blood. Tyndale died to get that Bible in your hands. Almost every early translator of Scripture into English died to get that Bible in your hands. That's how you got the faith. It's not unusual. We've just been living in an unusual time where it wasn't happening. What if the fires grow hot? Will we be faithful even to the point of death? Can we do that? And let me ask a question. This is very important for us. We have, we have, as you've noticed, more than two or three children in our church. Are we raising the next generation with that mindset? Or that what's really important is getting the American dream and add a little Jesus on the side? Would you like fries with that? Would you like a little Jesus with that? They're not the same thing. And if we raise them that what's really important is the American dream and take some Jesus with that, and the American dream requires burning the pinch of incense, and we have raised them with that, we have discipled them with that, don't be shocked when that's what they do. But I tell you over and over again, I have heard many, many youth pastors say with tears that what parents keep telling them over and over again is, I just want my kids to be happy. I like for my kids to be happy, and I like for my grandkids to be happy. I'd like them to be eternally filled with joy. And that comes from saying, I'm going to be faithful no matter what. And are we raising them with that mentality? And that's a hard question for us, because we're going to walk right out these doors, and that American dream is all over us. All over us. And that's why Satan, for all these times, before it was the American dream, it was the Smyrnian dream. And so he uses that economic pressure to get us to bow. Will we do that? Second question, and then we'll come to the table. Do we see true life and riches as Jesus does? See, Jesus looks and says, I know the assessment the world has of you. They look at you Christians there, and they say you're poor. I say they're wrong. I say you are rich. They say you are poor in the midst of riches and wealth. I say you are actually rich 
in the midst of real poverty. Poverty of spirit. Poverty of hearing and knowing my word, which is what's really important. Do we see it the way he does or the way the world does? Very often, what is esteemed by the world is despised by God. Not my word, that's Jesus's. You can look it up in Luke 16. What, what's, what's highly valued in the eyes of the world, Jesus says it's despised in the eyes of God. And what is esteemed by God is despised by the world. So which one, which are the spectacles through which I see? Is it the ones that the world gives to us? Or is it the ones that Jesus does? Does my assessment line up with Jesus or the world? And the simplest way to do that is, am I really living? What is really motivating me? Is it eternal reward or temporal success? You see, if the Smyrna Christians were being driven by temporal success, they were going to compromise and we're going to see churches in these letters who do exactly that because they've lost sight of the eternal reward. And they're beginning to view things the way the world and the culture around them views it. And Jesus is saying, don't look at it that way. I am the risen, living, exalted, first and last, alpha and omega. I have conquered death. And I'm telling you the way it actually is. Live that way. So which way do we live? Now, what we're going to do at this point is we're going to come to the table. And this table is the table of life. Because at this table, we are reminded that true life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. It consists in Jesus. It consists in him who was broken and buried and raised for us. At this table, we are reminded that when Jesus calls us and says, be faithful to the point of death, who has already done that for us? Jesus was faithful to the point of death and has shown us that God the Father has kept his covenant promises. Death could not hold him. And that same Jesus says, come to the table and remember that as I was faithful and death could not hold me, death will not hold you because I have conquered death. And so we come to this table today, and I want to encourage you, we're going to wrestle with this before God, because part of what we're doing, this is our covenant meal with God. And here we receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. But here, as in the waters of baptism, we renew our vow. And we renew our vow and say, Lord, we want to be faithful to you even to death, because we realize you were broken that we might be whole, and you died that we might live, and you have conquered death, and you offer that to us. And so we come to the table today that we have a heavenly reward. Remember the words I'm going to quote in a minute. We do this until he comes, because our faith is ultimately it's rooted in the past, but it's about the future. He is going to come, and we want on that day more than anything to hear, well done, 
good and faithful servant. Now, I want to remind us, you do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church to come to this table. You do have to be a believer, which means you have to understand that the gospel is not about what I do, but about what God has done. It is about what Christ has done on my behalf. We are proclaiming here that this bread represents Christ, who lived for us in perfect righteousness, who was put to death unrighteously and bore the righteous wrath of God that our sins deserved that we might be free. And that he has been raised literally bodily and is seated at the right hand of God. If we believe these things, this is your table. And I encourage you to come and to receive grace that we might live faithfully before our Father. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, this morning we come to this table recognizing, Lord, that though we have been unfaithful so many times, you have been faithful. The Father, though we have failed, the Son of God has overcome, and in his overcoming, we have life. So, Lord, we pray that you would meet us by your Holy Spirit as we come to this table and receive the sacrament. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, hold on to them, and we will take them together in just a couple moments. Lord Jesus, as we hold this bread, we are reminded of all the many ways that we have failed and broken our covenant vows to you. We are reminded of the times that we compromised on our faith. And yet we are also reminded that we celebrate this covenant meal because, Jesus, you were always and ever faithful. You were broken because you refused to compromise. You were shattered because you were faithful in your every word and thought and deed to the law of our God. So, Lord, in taking this sacrament this morning, we recognize anew that our righteousness is because of Jesus Christ and his obedience not because of what we have done. And Lord, in taking this this morning, we proclaim we are looking to you by faith alone to be received before the Father. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, we lift up this cup, the cup of salvation, and we proclaim that though we have sinned, your blood is powerful to cleanse us from our sins. And we recognize, Lord, as we've already prayed, that we have failed many times. We have not been those who have overcome. We have not been those who were faithful even to the point of death. 
We have often complained at our sufferings. But in holding this cup, we are proclaiming the power of the blood of Christ to cleanse us from our sins and even to break its power and its hold on us. And so, Lord, as those who confess our sins this morning, we pray that you would cleanse them fresh and new. And, Lord, that you would break its power that we might live faithfully in righteousness before you all of our days. Say thanks be to God for the blood of Christ. Take and drink. Holy Spirit of the living God, you who speak to the churches, we pray that you would fasten this word to our hearts this week. Lord, we pray as we go out from here and we are tempted to compromise, as we are tempted to turn away, as we are tempted to have the valuation of this world rather than you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us. That your word would be fresh and powerful in our ears. And Holy Spirit, I pray that this sacrament where we have come to this table would fill us with grace and would empower us that when the temptation comes, we would be like those believers in Smyrna and we would be faithful. That we would hold to your word and that we would say we will not compromise. I pray we would be like Polycarp, who said you had been faithful to him for all of those years, how could he now deny you? Father, I pray you would work that spirit in us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name for your glory and our good. Amen. Let's stand together. And I'm going to send us out with a word of benediction from the opening verses of Revelation. I encourage you to receive the blessing of God. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over all the kings of the earth. He has loved you and he has freed you from your sins by his blood. So go forth as his priests and kings and serve him in the earth. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.